Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So I was touring Poland uh, and going to towns and giving concerts as the first kind of Jewish person who'd been in those towns in 70 years. Uh, as part of that, we came across lots of different kind of private memorializations, small town memorializations in Poland. Um, a couple of them are up here for you to see. So this is a little bit difficult. One is uh, a bima that was the only thing standing in, from the synagogue in Tarnow, Poland. And the town of Tarnow was actually able to get a grant from the EU just to preserve this bima. And they don't really know what it is, but they know that it's Jewish, and they know that it's from the Holocaust, and so they think it's important. Um, this now, um, it, it used to be the Mayfair nearby, and it's also in southern Poland. And somebody decided, well, I'm going to preserve all of the mosaics because it looks really great in my nightclub. So he's preserving these fantastic like Jewish artifacts, but mostly for this like kind of quasi-exotic nightclub. And we came across countless examples of this. So there's people like preserving doorposts and things like that. Um, so as is in my work, um, following Poland, I actually had a concert tour that was unrelated in Germany. So I went from doing very intense Holocaust research and touring camps and working in Poland to playing Brahms and Schubert and Beethoven and touring in Germany. And I was in this little tiny town and I came across these, these gold Skolpostaga, which are something that towns in Germany now put in. Um, they're outside of the places of residence where Jewish victims in the Holocaust lived. Um, they've now extended it. There's a Sinti and Roma initiative in Germany. This, this has been extended to Austria and also the Czech Republic. Um, and Budapest is the latest city to do this. Um, so what they are is they're quite literally tripping stones. Like you see them in the road and it's these like startling little local reminders that the Holocaust didn't just occur in far flung places in Poland, right? This is a local, every single town was affected, there's nowhere in Europe that was exempt. So I started thinking about classical music and how just like we can't remove the Holocaust from small towns in Europe, we can't remove the Holocaust from the standard Germanic canon. And I started thinking that it's disingenuous be presenting standard classical violin canon, classical music canon, without also the narrative of the Holocaust. So I said I want a project 
at the Atomic Arts Museum to produce two CDs and two programs to tour with, including traditional classical venues, for instance, Steinway or Alice Tully Hall, to reincorporate Holocaust composers with the same sort of credence and the same sort of validity that we give composers who supported the Third Reich, like Richard Strauss. So, I have two programs. They both reflect the divide in scholarship that is currently in Holocaust studies. One is a Soviet novel, um, which focuses on the East and basically the last 20 years of Holocaust scholarship, and one is a Germanic album, so looking at primarily Western Europe, but extending to Germany, Austria, Czech Republic, Silesia, areas like this. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about each composer and how they were selected. Um, it was incredibly important to include canonical works that would be recognized by your standard classical music performer um, in this in this thing, um, in both albums and both programs. So, and so to talk briefly about the divide between East and West, my specialty as a scholar in the Holocaust is recovered music from the former USSR. But I also look at issues of trauma, memory studies, and things like this, specifically in the former USSR. I primarily deal with Ukraine, um, including evac evacuations of Ukrainians to the Far East, in Soviet near and Far East. Um, so what we've seen is about 80% of the knowledge that we have of the Holocaust is camps and ghettos centered in the West. So when we hear Holocaust narratives or see kind of the um, uh, blockbuster or Hollywood portrayal of the Holocaust, it often goes something like, the Nazi rise to power, the persecution of Jews, ghettoization, deportation, and ultimately camps. This is a narrative, unfortunately, with which we are very familiar. Um, this, of course, incorporates such important topics as the Reinhardt camps. So Auschwitz-Birkenau, Treblinka, from a musical perspective, it incorporates camps like Theresienstadt, which was the propaganda camp of the SS. But what we've seen in the last 20 years is the Soviet archives have opened. And when the Soviet archives have opened, there's been a new initiative, which is being spearheaded in the popular discussion called the Holocaust by Bullets, which means that an additional several million Jews east of Poland were murdered before the camps were even opened in the invasion of the USSR. And it also expands this to other victim groups, including Soviet POWs, uh, including ethnic Ukrainians, and including just ethnic Slavic people who were deemed similarly subhuman. Um, there's local initiatives to go back and reconstruct these narratives in towns. Uh, so there are people, there's an organization called Yehad Aluna, for example, that does organization that does um, interviews on the ground with the oldest living people in the town to find out what really occurred. Um, they, Yehad Aluna has mapped, I believe, over 3,000 sites to date in just Ukraine eastwards. These are not camps and ghettos. These are individual sites of execution in the east. And that's primarily where my research comes from. So in the selection of the composers, I deliberately chose, so if you look at the Soviet album, Shostakovich is a canonical classical composer that would be recognized by most musicians. That's the big canonical piece. It's about all the Emil Levand is an undiscovered work that I found in the U.S. Holocaust Museum archives, um, and he was Ukrainian Jewish descent, but he survived the war, and he also served in the Red Army. 
So it's important to acknowledge that one, the Red Army had the largest Jewish enlistment of any army during the war. So I wanted to include the Red Army narrative. Um, and it was composed substantially post-war. Edith <coughs> um, Hermant is a Belarusian composer. And Belarus suffered on two fronts during the Holocaust, not only losing its population, an incredible loss to the Jewish communities there, but 85% of agriculture was destroyed in Belarus, and 90% of all industrial materials were destroyed in Belarus. So when you're looking at post-war constructions of Belarus, the country had to be built nearly from the ground up. We're talking roads were destroyed, entire villages were destroyed. So Edith Kermand is important because she served in the war as a partisan fighter in Belarus. She's not only a Jewish survivor, but she's a Belarusian survivor. And finally, I have Suleiman Yudakov, who is in fact Bukharian Jewish. Um, so he is from Uzbekistan. And many composers interacted with Bukharian Jewry when they were evacuated to Uzbekistan. And it speaks to the narrative of the several million Soviets who were evacuated to Central Stalinist Central Asia during the war. I'll talk about the Germanic problem when we serve to those composers. So Shostakovich is well known in the kind of canonical classical music world as being a Soviet dissident composer or somebody who at times was willing to play the Stalinist game and was willing to kind of get along with the authorities, but also somebody who was heavily prosecuted. He was prosecuted for his friendships with Jews and for his commentary during the war. And so his work has kind of a dark war undertone as well. His Seventh Symphony to Leningrad is one of the most iconic war symphonies. Uh, and when I play an example for you, you can kind of hear he has two primary characters. One is a dark, mournful type of elegy, and the second is a joking, aggressive scherzo that's almost, people say it's laughing in the face of death or laughing in the face of Stalinism. So I'll play both. I'll play two excerpts from the movements for you.
two brazenly different characters, and sometimes, and this sonata is nearly 40 minutes long, um, it's for violin and piano, and sometimes those characters shift very abruptly, which leaves the listener kind of unaware or destabilized, which I think also speaks to Shostakovich's own condition in the USSR as a very destabilized person, kind of not knowing his status, um, and things like that. So, my next composer is one that I discovered myself um, in the archive at the US Holocaust Museum. His name is Emil Levin. And as far as we know, the work that I'm going to play is the only one in his canon. Uh, he joined, he was at, um, he was accepted to Moscow Conservatory in 1941, at an era that few Jews, unless they were extraordinarily talented, were admitted to the conservatory, which was typically reserved for Russian students. Uh, in, 19, uh, in 1941, he also enlisted in the Red Army to fight. Um, he was recalled in 1943, so he fought the first two years of the Soviet front. He was recalled in 1943 to the conservatory um, because they realized in the army that he was phenomenally talented one day when he was performing like some random violin out on the front. And he was sent back to the conservatory to play in a jazz band for the morale for the troops. Uh, and then post-war, he primarily worked in like radio and TV orchestras in the USSR before he immigrated in 1991. He gave this piece to the museum in 1993 and in interviews with his son, he believes that his father wrote this as kind of a personal elegy. He never spoke about the Holocaust. He tried to go to the museum and find out information about his family, um, but unfortunately the archive records of his family, what happened to them in Odessa, um, were only open in 2014, and Emil Levin died in 2010. Um, so he probably never knew what happened to his family during the war. I was able to reconstruct that using the International Tracing Service that the US Holocaust Museum has and unfortunately found that he lost over 85 members of his family during the war. So he was likely the sole survivor, and that's why he never spoke about it. This piece is fantastic for solo violin. Uh, I really love when I come across archival materials, and they're brilliant for violin, because often you find them and you're like, oh, well, this backstory is fantastic, and like, the composer's fantastic, but like, ooh, this piece is like not the best. Uh, he was a virtuoso violinist, and so as a result, this piece is this fantastic little virtuoso morsel for violin. I worked with a Hasidic um, rabbi who was from Ukraine when I was originally learning it, and we were able to isolate three of the melodies in it, um, as they got them from near Balta in Ukraine, um, which is actually really interesting because my pianist for the project, uh, his both of his grandparents are from Balta and survived the war. So we thought it was a nice coincidence. And one more thing, the, uh, there's a middle section that unfortunately has interruptions that sound like a prayerful melody um, that are interspersed with, he said, gunfire. And I think that that's a very, um, it's a very vivid image through this. I'll play a couple sections from this piece.
being a very nice virtuosic piece for violin, it has this very atonal middle section that kind of is filled with conflict and turmoil. And, and, but it's, it's very nicely laid out for the instrument. You have really beautiful melodies throughout, which is quite unusual in kind of 20th century violin route. So. Also, it was important for my next composer for me to include um, women composers and women experiences of the Holocaust, as well as um, men and wartime experiences of the Holocaust. So I was thrilled to find this piece by Eddie Turmond. Um, it's completely unpublished. So I worked with a, uh, a musicologist in Belarus who doesn't have much work as a musicologist in Belarus, unfortunately. There's not too many national composers. Uh, and she basically works with just Jewish music and she tries to find recovered pieces. She was given this by some relative of the composer, we don't really know who, she didn't have children, uh, and told, it's about the Holocaust, it's an elegy, and um, it's supposed to be something related to cantor singing, and going throughout, it has these very like creepy moments, it's very improvisatorial, there's not really a fixed meter, when we were learning it between piano and violin, we really had to sit down and figure out like how we're going to actually just line this up and like know where we both are, and it was quite a challenge because it really is, it's an improvisation, um, which kind of is in the Jewish musical tradition for the violin in general, something that's a little bit more freeform and a little bit more open to interpretation of things. So I think it serves the medium really well, um, but it's... What intrigued me most was her life story and her working as a partisan and her fighting in the forest of Belarus. And it was, it's quite challenging to find truly a Belarusian composer. So I was very pleased to find this piece. composer to hold the Stalin Prize for composition. He attended Moscow Conservatory, which is 
quite extraordinary because he was born in an orphanage and had no musical training up until he was about 14. And so for him to go from that to then being able to perform at the level to be accepted the most prestigious conservatory in the USSR is pretty extraordinary, especially with the Jewish name, and especially he was kind of doubly blacklisted, being not only a Jew, but also from Uzbekistan. And so this piece draws on a really specific Bukharian musical tradition called Shashmakam, which has um, kind of this relentless drumming, usually with a female singer over it, but sometimes a clarinet. It's a little bit similar to the Armenian musical tradition of Duduk, which is a kind of a clarinet that plays over drumming or solo. Um, in this piece, it's been very classically arranged and very structured, and he sat down, he took his conservatory technique, and he kind of forced the Shashmakam technique and these nice Eastern melodies into a very classical format with nice piano and violin. Um, but what's great about it is it still maintains that kind of Eastern flair that you would expect, and it's the type of music that like Ukrainian Jewish refugees would have been hearing when they were in Uzbekistan, for example. And it's also the type of music that composers like Weinberg, who were evacuated from Moscow, then took back to Moscow and used to influence their works. And so I'm going to play up through this really nice little violin cadenza that it has. But you can see it maintains some of its classical virtuosity and his very traditional classical training while still having this really nice Eastern Without getting into details of each composer, 
uh, and without getting into, it just presents these composers alongside Shostakovich and says, hey, these are equally valid works, uh, and let's kind of celebrate them for what they are. And it also starts to challenge this post, uh, this post-war Soviet anti-Semitism that lingered with so many of these composers, right? So if you were in the USSR and you managed to survive, your experience of the war, your experience of trauma certainly did not stop in 1945, right? So I think it's important that, you know, I mean, these composers are ex extremely not unknown, <laughs> or they're extremely unknown outside of the USSR. This is not something that you would ever come across. Um, and I think that that's important too because a lot of them did not disseminate their works or did not further musical education because they were Jewish. Um, so, that brings me to my slightly more problematic album. <laughs> um, in addition to being Jewish, I'm also German. So I had family who fought for the Wehrmacht, and I think that there's a lot of awesome things about German culture. I particularly love Wagner, which is heresy, and I wanted to know why. Um, so I started looking into it. I started looking into Hitler's obsession with these composers. Um, I started looking into the German obsession and the kind of Germanic obsession with these ideas and Alpine glory and all of these things. Um, and the conclusion that I drew is that Hitler's worst nightmare went to have one of these composers recorded alongside a couple of Holocaust composers. So that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Richard Strauss is an interesting figure. I deliberately didn't record Wagner, by the way. I think that's kind of pushing it a little bit too far. Um, love the authors, don't hate them, um, So Strauss is a really interesting, really debatable figure. So people paint him as this kind of like part loyalist, and he like, benefited tremendously from a lot of decisions made under National Socialism, but he also like used his influence to save 30 of his family members from Freisenstadt, right? And he hid his daughter and his family. Um, and he also like saved the principal oboist of Berlin Philharmonic using his influence. Um, so, but kind of covertly and without making a big flap about things. Um, so he's he's debatable in the sense that like he took a really great, he benefited personally tremendously from National Socialism, right? He had his operas published. He was really famous as a conductor. Um, his works were championed far post-war by the Berlin Philharmonic, by the Philharmonic. Um, but he's um, kind of debatable. So I chose Strauss and Nona as opposed to like some Wagner elegy or something. Um, and it's, I want to play a little bit just to kind of get this, like what we're looking for with 20th century Germanic music. What's our canonical piece for that? Um, but it does, it has some really great melodies and it's a good piece.
bootstraps over at Symphony Concerts, it kind of brings out um, like Don Juan or Till Orlando, people like Hero's Tale, a lot of them are these very heroic situated things. Um, and I, I like the idea of the violin like kind of being a hero through the album and kind of soaring above and not getting mired down in political stuff. I think it's, it's one of the best sonatas of the 20th century, so it's nice to include it in, in this work. Um, Okay, so my way of including Wagner <laughs> is to include a composer, which is a very common story from Germanic areas, right? So mostly German and Austrian, exiled composers. And the good majority of film composers in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s were Jews from ex exile from Europe. And so if you think about, and also like directors, producers, right? Incredibly famous people. Um, Arnold Schoenberg, of course, also was exiled. Um, and we would not have Hollywood today and the aesthetic that we have in Hollywood today without kind of the German musical tradition that came over with these composers. Um, the piece that I chose is by one of them called Franz Waxman. And Waxman wrote tons and tons of scores, but he also is recognized as a fairly substantial concert composer. Um, so his the other piece from the same film, Carmen Fantasy, has been performed and recorded like over a hundred times. So he's well recognized in the classical stage, as well as a movie composer, right? So he's won like five or six Academy Awards for best score, and he's, he's well received. Um, however, most of the movie composers were not recognized on the classical stage. And it's interesting that both of his pieces came from the same film. So it's also interesting that the piece that I chose is from 1944. So uh, it is a fantasy on themes from Tristan and Isolde, but it was originally composed for a film called Humoresque, which was like kind of a pseudo-romance film about a violinist. Now, in this film, the violinist has to play a number of classical selections, but Quaxman, because he's writing a score, has to make them not sound just like he's playing the opera or playing Whatever, he takes the themes and he makes them his own. So the Karma fantasy is from an earlier part of the same film, and the Wagner fantasy is from the end of the film, where the person's kind of walking by the water. And so it has absolutely nothing to do with the plot of Tristan and Isolde. He just thought it was a great theme and wanted to use it. Um, it kind of made it film-sounding jazzy. Um, the violinist for the film, the hand portion, so they shot like, over the violinist's shoulder. And you can see the hands moving actually correctly on the instrument because it's Isaac Stern. It's the violinist Isaac Stern. Uh, and it, it was originally supposed to be Yasha Heifetz. Um, Heifetz thought that he was above performing for film and decided not to take it and it ended up being a joke because Isaac Stern made something like $500,000 from the film. <laughs> so, which, you know, in 1944. Um, and Heifetz was so upset after this film, he didn't take it because he thought the music was so great that he went to Waxman and he said, hey, could you write both of those fantasies down for me for orchestra like in full version and took them on concert tours. Um, now, since I've selected this piece, I've had some news about it, which I'm pretty thrilled about. And um, this piece has never been sold as a recording in Israel because it's been associated with like kind of Wagnerisms and stuff like that. Um, the recording that we're doing, that my pianist and I are doing of this in April, is being purchased by Yad Vashem. So, <laughs> we're pretty thrilled about that. Um, but I'm going to play it. It's a, it's a very jazzy version. 
parts. You might hear like a little bit, I'm gonna play something that sounds a little bit like film music, and then jump over and play something that sounds a little bit more like Wagner. Very good friends with the archival manager and with her chocolate interpreter. 
And so I found out that they had this as a holding, which by the way is not published. Like they don't put that on their website, they don't put that on their list, like a list of catalog things, whatever. A friend of a friend told me that they had it. And I wrote her and I said, hey, like, is this true? Like there's like 17 versions that are not true floating around, tell me more. And I got a PDF in the email from her <laughs> score, which they usually charge 190 euro per page for. So um, kind of nice that she listened to one. But she said, yeah, you can have this and you can just perform it and record it, but you have exclusive performing rights and like don't tell anybody. <laughs> like don't tell people that you like, you know, just have this and can publish it. Because you can't publish it, don't show anybody the email, but perform it. Okay, great. <laughs> I don't need to publish it, I'm gonna publish it. And I've made the intentional decision to not reconstruct the piano part. It's for violin and piano originally. I'm excerpting the piece and playing it just for solo violin. Um, I think that it stands better on its own as an elegy for solo violin um, and not try to reconstruct something that was lost in the Holocaust. Um, so I'm going to play a little bit of the opening of the Adagio movement, which is what we're primarily going to be working with in the CD. Very nicely on loan to me from the Ukrainian. 
um, which is a photo of shoes buried in Bobby Yar. So, um, unfortunately, the mass killing center of Bobby Yar, or the mass execution center of Bobby Yar, is in Ukraine. Um, it's considered one of the worst tragedies of the USSR during the war, um, and of the Holocaust during the war, and it's iconic for the Soviet Jewry um, in the worst possible way. And it also tied to a larger kind of iconography of Holocaust imagery. We wanted to include, like, we had included shoes because a lot of people think of the museum when they think of that. So those were our two selections that we went with. Unfortunately, that was That's me and my lovely duo, and I'd love to hear some questions or hear some feedback from you all. But thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.